on the Dallas Opera Network. You're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, let's get ready to rumble! Hey, wherever you are, however you're listening, it's Opera Box Score. I'm your host, George Cedarquist. Join on America's talk radio show about opera by Oliver Camacho, Matt Cummings, Weston Williams, and Ashley Hardgrave. All right, this week, Barbara Hannigan goes inside the huddle to give Weston and Oliver the post-pandemic singer's playbook to introduce her young artist initiative called Momentum and to argue why streaming is here to stay. Plus, two-minute drill starting lineup is announced for the Cardiff Singer of the World competition. Will Kosovo be this year's frontrunner? Oliver Camacho, how is that chicken looking? (laughs) So, for the audience, I'm roasting a chicken right now. Uh, I'm looking forward to this taping being over. We are professionals. That's why I'm smiling today because there's going to be some really good hot chicken fat to slather on some lettuces and make the best salad dressing. Um, But... I, well, let's have this sports talk part so we can talk about Barbara Hannigan in a minute. <laughs> Matt, Matt Cummings, I'm, I'm puzzling over all of our names this week. Um, Barbara Hannigan is presumably not the, the mistress of a Depression-era orphanage in New York City. <laughs> as far as we know. But she does share the name of a very famous one <laughs> that everyone should know from the 1977 hit musical Annie. You, I'm so glad you familiar, explained George? because the the, <laughs> the 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 two people in our audience who would have gotten that reference are, the are Venn diagram like, of <laughs> Annie fans and sports fans and opera fans like, who also got the Hannigan reference. I don't oh, know. God. I feel like we got a lot of Stannies in our audience. <laughs> oh, absolutely. <laughs> Ashley, Ashley, is it a show that you've ever been associated with or a show you've ever done? Oh, absolutely. I did uh, scenes of it when I was a kid, and then I was a Boylan sister uh, in college. So I got to do the uh, knockoff Andrew sisters and sing in the corner and do this. <laughs> uh, unlike any other Tuesday, you know. I mean, I've seen the movie, of course. Man, when I was on the playground as a little kid, boy, was I teased. And I was called Little Orphan Annie the whole time. Look at this mustache now, everybody. (laughs) The Bears get Justin Field in the NFL draft. Ashley's hopping over there. Yes, they do. Yes, they do. He was absolutely amazing at Ohio State. He's going to work with... Andy Dalton, who we randomly are going to pay for a year. Uh, but the most important thing is he and his promise are going to help us forget all about the fact that we almost got Russell Wilson because he's basically a young Russell Wilson in terms of his technique. So he is going to bring in a new era. I'm calling it right now. Very excited. Even as a Michigan Wolverines fan, I can still applaud a Buckeye that wears Bears orange. The Kentucky Derby, the fastest two minutes in sports, was so fast, I completely missed it. <laughs> I hope you had a mint julep today in honor of it happening. <laughs> I didn't, but I remember saying to my children, like, this is the most exciting two minutes in sports. Let's watch it together. And they were so bored. Hmm. But at least they were only bored for two minutes. I guess so. If you were to poll them on whether they enjoyed it, they all would have said nay. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Let's talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. So I cannot believe that Barbara Hannigan said yes to us. Uh, Doesn't she know any better? (laughs) We do, in fact, love you, Miss Hannigan. I mean, we've had some pretty important guests on this show, but 
Um, I have never been more nervous about interviewing somebody than I was. <laughs> Both of us. Uh, we were yeah. like. <laughs> and if you watch this interview carefully, you'll see that I'm so nervous that my glasses are fogging up. So I'm constantly taking off my glasses <laughs> to wipe off the steam. Um, but. Barbara Hannigan is amazing. We all know she's amazing. Um, she is so down to earth. Um, she cares so much about her vocation and about her colleagues. And she's doing so much to share what she has with young artists and um, starting professionals. She has her young artist program, Equilibrium, which we will talk about, and her new initiative called Momentum, which we will talk about. And of course, she is the most badass singer conductor. I mean, has there ever been one before her? I mean, we now have um, what, Natalie Stutzmann, right, who's right, right. also yeah, incredible. Yeah, yeah. But I feel like Barbara Hannigan like started. Oh, I guess maybe Jose Cura started it, or maybe <laughs> someone we're not going to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> But not at the same time. Jose right. Cura and um, Placid Sunday uh, never sang and conducted at the same time. But to do what Barbara Hannigan does and to sing like Ligeti Mysteries of the Macabre or Lulu Sweet or all this crazy stuff, mm. um, wearing PVC and wigs and uh, it's Chewing just... bubble gum. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you don't know Barbara Hannigan, just go to YouTube and just type in her name and watch any three videos that she's made. And you will be amazed. So without further ado, oh, Weston, before I mm. pass it over to the interview, anything you want to say? Well, I just want to say that we uh, we started talking off, uh, started talking about how she uh, won the Grammy for Crazy Girl Crazy and um, why her mother objected to the news's portrayal of it in uh, Canada. in my pajamas with a glass of wine between Lulu shows, just chewing the fat with a friend of mine. And I was watching the Grammys online, you know, because obviously I couldn't go. I had a show, I think, not the, maybe the next day or the day after. Anyway, or rehearsal, I don't know. And uh, yeah, I was just sitting there and I, and I said to my friend, oh, just be quiet for a second. They're doing my category. I just have to see. And I had really, I never <laughs> thought that I would win. I just felt that I should see who did win. And then I was like, no, I couldn't <laughs> believe that, that, that RCD won. That was just, that was a big shocker. And did you have to accept the speech online or something? There was no, oh, well, the funny thing about it was that there is a photo fo floating around of someone who has blonde hair holding a Grammy, who is not me, who has, and it's Getty Images has it. And it's somebody I've never seen in my life. <laughs> and, and it's. Holding the Grammy, it says Barbara Hannigan with her Grammy, but I wasn't there. 
And then my mother, like they even put that photograph in the Nova Scotia. I'm from Nova Scotia, right? This province on the east coast of Canada. And they put that photograph in the Nova Scotia newspaper. And my mother called them up. She was like, um, a lot of people in Nova Scotia know Barbara Handigan. And they know that that photograph is not her. <laughs> I was like... We have to get we have to get that person on the next uh, podcast. Oh, maybe that should be our banner image for this episode. <laughs> that would be just, so funny. Just Google Barbara Hannigan Grammy, and you will find a picture of a woman, blonde woman, in a long black dress holding a Grammy, and it will say that it's me. <laughs> well, we are already talking about uh, Crazy Girl Crazy, which has Barrio Gershwin and oh, I forget the and last Berg. Alba and Barry, okay, just you know, the, three, the three yeah. things you always want to put together, and one of those pieces is completely a cappella, mm, right? The, the sequenza uh, or something like that, yeah. Barrio Sequenza Three. So he wrote all these sequenzas, sequences for solo instruments, and the third one he wrote for solo voice. He wrote it for his um, his ex-wife, who was an amazing American Armenian singer named Kathy Barbarian, and it's like it's just a crazy piece with symbols it's like a graphic score and so meaning graphic score means that it's not like there are a few notes in it but there's also like all these symbols it's like hieroglyphics almost that you have to figure out and perform like tongue clicks and laughing and mm. coughing and gasping and um, <laughs> yeah it's it's a, it's a really crazy piece about a woman who's trying to find her place in the world really huh. and I thought it would fit really well on the cd because the CD is about, well, it's kind of about a woman and it's about a kind of madness, but crazy also can be a positive word if something's crazy or if I'm crazy yeah. about you or mm -hmm. something, it has positive connotations. So I was looking at like women and craziness and madness and risks and, you know, all that kind of stuff on the CD. I love it. You know, there, I often make this like little comparison. Like I have a friend who sight reads music like ridiculous. Oh yeah. You might've met her, Catherine Dane. Um, uh, no, I think I've heard her name. She's in yeah. the Netherlands. Anyway, ah. she's a type of singer. Oh yeah, Catherine you, Dane. Sorry, yeah, no. yeah. Of course, I know Catherine. Yeah, yeah. yeah, she's amazing. Where you can you can throw spaghetti and meatballs on the wall, and if it sticks to the wall, she can She'll read it, it as music. You know, <laughs> she's amazing. Yeah, I yeah. recommended her once for something uh, because uh, Reinbert DeLeo, the conductor I often recorded with and performed with many many times, and I was I forget where I was in Munich or I don't know somewhere. And he called me up and said, I have a, I have a concert next week and the singer has gotten sick. Can you recommend anyone? And I recommended Catherine and she did it and she was fantastic. Yeah, she's brilliant. Yeah. So what are, when choosing repertoire, I mean, we already learned now the concept behind Crazy Girl Crazy, but yeah. just in general, what are your kind of standards and goals with repertoire choice, especially when you're both conducting and singing? Well, I think the first thing is to say that pretty well all my choices come from the gut. I mean, instinct. Absolutely. It's not intellectual choices at all. It's not that I'm fascinated by analyzing such and such a work and figuring out whether the form is retrograde or retrograde inversion, etc. <laughs> totally not interested. I mean, I'm interested in that maybe later. But what's my gut feeling about the piece? And do I want to sink my teeth into it? And do I want to live with it? And do I want to love it? Because it's like a relationship, a piece of music. So um, do I, is it something I want to stand, spend time with? Is it something I want to have a drink with? You know, um, <laughs> I want to have I a drink to... with that sequenza. <laughs> <laughs> or like, you know, would it go well with my morning cup of tea? You know, and then 
the next thing is that I like to put material repertoire together on programs that make emotional dramaturgical sense to me. That means there has to be a kind of through line that connects everything. And it doesn't need to be a linear story. And it can be actually, it can even be contradictory, but somehow it has to make sense for me that there's some, that everything has to be interconnected. And so I, I mean, I choose very varied repertoire. I love old music. I love new music. I just did the craziest um, improvisation with live electronics on a Rameau aria. <clears throat> I mean, yeah. Which Rameau aria? I'm crazy about Rameau. Um, Triste is après, you know, Castor Produxia. And um, so, I mean, I really, I love to mix things up, but there has to be for me some kind of interconnectedness with everything. And it has to be really something that I feel I can incorporate in my system. You have I just, okay. uh, oh, sorry, uh, I was just wanted to ask, you always seem to have such a, a personal connection to everything that you do, which is so exciting to me as, as an artist, just seeing an example of someone doing that uh, and doing it successfully. Um, do you ever like see something uh, like what, what are your limits basically? What is something that you'll uh, you'll see and like, maybe, maybe it's out of your range or maybe you're like, I'm not sure if I can conduct and sing that at the same time. Like <laughs> how, how do you negotiate those limits with this really boundless self-expression that you are so known for? Well, um, there are some pieces that lend themselves very well to singing and conducting. And there are other pieces which don't make any sense. Like, mm. I could do it, but it wouldn't make sense. Mm. Um, uh, maybe some of your listeners know this extraordinary piece by Samuel Barber called Knoxville, Summer of oh, 1915. We, we talk about it all the time, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I ended up singing and conducting it. I was only supposed to sing it, actually, with London Symphony um, in March, but I ended up singing it and conducting it on one day's notice, which was really, it, I knew that it would work very well for the piece because the piece is about conjuring collective memory. So to stand and face the, the orchestra and sing it, and we didn't have a public, so it was possible to face the orchestra. I mean, that, that just was like, absolutely, 100%, that works. Mm. Um, but I feel that I'm, I suppose I'm in quite a luxury position, but I also have to take credit maybe for having created that luxury position um, in saying that I, I really choose carefully uh, what I do, what repertoire I do, and with whom. And that's like, I'm always, I, I don't, if I get offered something, I say, who are the other singers? Who's the director? Who's the conductor? If it's an opera. You know, or if, you know, if I'm invited to a festival, I want to know who the other people are, that are that's going to be there. I want to know what kind of programming they have, what kind of audiences they have. Like, I'm really selective. And <clears throat> I suppose, you know, maybe that strange path comes from the fact that at the beginning of my career, I was doing like the most obscure contemporary music, like <laughs> really hardcore, strange, strange stuff. Like I've even... You know, <laughs> you know, microtonal, like crazy microtonal improvisational material. And sometimes in the audience, we literally had like seven people, you know, and 
and they were all me (laughs) (laughs) and i mean so i in a way like you you build up your resilience because you you're staying true to what you feel is important it's not about selling tickets it's not about i mean i was performing a lot of these things for example in holland where the government was funding um, concerts and so they could afford to do a concert where you right. didn't make any ticket sales um, that's not the case in the states for sure um, but I think so I, I mean I, I in, in a way that was like a hard knock because it's not very fun to walk out on stage and see that nobody's there on the other hand I was performing music I really believed in and what happened over time is that audiences started to get larger and started to trust me and I always say to young artists, this whole business is based on trust and relationship. Trusting the music, trusting the composer, trusting the presenter, trusting your Mm. colleagues, having a relationship with those people. It's not about your agent having a relationship with those people. It's about you, you know. And so over the years, building trust and relationship, also with audiences, finding myself finally performing the most contemporary music, to full houses at the Munich State Opera or at Paris Opera, whatever, you know. Um, But it's been a long road. You know, I'm going to be 50 in a week and a day. So (laughs) on May 8th, yeah, a week and two days. Happy Um, early birthday. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, I'm not sure I'm totally answering your question, but I guess for me it's been... um, it's been a very interesting path. I didn't have major management, not even remotely major management, until I was 40. So really? I was do- wow. Yeah. So I was doing pretty well everything myself. Um, I learned a lot about, again, the, the trust and relationship. I mean, I was dealing directly with people. You know, the Berlin Philharmonic called me on the phone the first time mm. they wanted me to work with them. Conductors were calling me directly. So that was very cool. Because you just, then you just talk, you you know, you're just talking shop directly instead of agent to agent or management to management. And for me, that's really, you know, the personal interaction is, again, same with the repertoire. There has to be an interconnectedness, you know. So just go back briefly to the first part of the repertoire. And then it's a great place to pivot. I just want to say that I have some friends, uh, and I'm sure there are a lot of people out there listening right now. Uh, who trust your taste in repertoire so much that whenever a new recording comes out, we just talk about like, oh, I've got the new Barbara Hannigan. I'm listening to the new Barbara Hannigan, you know? (laughs) Not even talking about composers anymore, just talking about you. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, that I find really wonderful because I realized at a certain point that um, because I had the trust of the listener, I could say, hey, why don't you listen to this? Why don't you try listening to this? Why don't we put these things together and let's all like, I'm really curious what people will think when we put, you know, Berio, Berg and Gershwin together or when I put mm-hmm. Rameau and this obscure composer named Patrassi and then Hindemith together, which I did like a month ago in X, like really as one unit, one piece with a flow, with no applause in between. And like people go with it. Audiences are curious and if you invite them to be curious and to be participating in the event with you you know witnessing the event with you you're you it again it comes back to that trust and um i also was really lucky that i first i worked with vinter and vinter 
uh, label, and and now I've you know the the main part of my albums have been with um, Alpha. Alpha, and Alpha. Alpha. Yeah, me too. They're so amazing <laughs> because I just say, oh, why don't we do a, a you know a messy all messy on CD? Great. Why don't we do uh, um, <laughs> you know uh, the 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 Vienna CD. I mean, that's pretty obscure repertoire. Mm-hmm. Early mm-hmm. Weber and, and Semlinsky's. Yeah. But I mean, they're so into all the things I'm doing. Why don't I put Grise together with Haydn? And no, no. <laughs> like, let's do that triptych. And they're like, thumbs up, you know? <laughs> and so the support is amazing. But I, I don't think that would have happened. I remember like trying in, when I was in my 20s, I remember trying to get stuff that I had done that was had already been recorded you know in live in concert and it was a really good quality I couldn't get it put out on a CD to save my life so mm. it's it was it's been a long game for me absolutely long game which is fine I have no yeah. problem with that but it's it's interesting you know well we touched briefly upon you as a you know a young artist transitioning into your professional self and now we know your age which I'm shocked that I heard that, Thank but you. Um, <laughs> we can bleep it out if you want. <laughs> no, no, it's going to be, <laughs> I'm advertising um, it. So. But my, my first, uh, I first became aware of you through one of our interview guests, uh, Douglas Williams, who was one of your equilibrium young artist fellows. And can you talk yeah. about um, the transition between the young artist training to right. the professional career and yeah. what, how that space is like a lonely space and a, a oh. difficult space. Yeah. Well, you know, around 2016, 17, when I started to get into a position where I realized I had, I had some clout, you know, I thought, okay, well then I need to start paying it forward. And how am I going to do that? And I thought, okay, I could go and, you know, do, be a regular person and, at a, at a conservatory and do master classes, which I do to a certain extent. I mean, I go to Juilliard regularly and University of Toronto and some other places. But I thought, that's not really where I'm needed. Where am I needed? And I thought, the loneliest time, the most isolated time of a young artist's career is when there's, or of any artist's career, I think, is when they're starting out and all of a sudden you're professional. You know, you've done all mm. your YAPs, your young artist programs, and all of a sudden you're out there on the road and you're supposed to know everything and you know nothing and you don't know anyone you have a few people and that that period of you know i i mean i think it's about seven years when every cent you make is basically going back into coaching training and prepping because everything you do is new um you're on the road alone you're taking every possible gig you can and so i decided to create this initiative which was really for young professionals. It was for young professional artists in the first substantial phase of their career. I didn't want to put an age limit on it. I said, what, what, okay, what does the first substantial phase mean about the first seven years of your career? Because I figured like what I've seen in my life is that if an artist makes it through those first seven years, usually they'll stick around. Uh, but if, if the first seven years are too tough, then we lose a lot of artists into something. I was else. just telling Wesson that I know yeah. people who completed some of the most prestigious, you know, finishing programs yeah. and then they just disappear. And then they just mm-hmm. disappeared. Yeah. And so I just thought that's maybe where I can be a helping hand because I know a lot of people. I do all my own programming. I don't like 
orchestras don't call me up and say, would you like to come and conduct this? No, they just say, would you like to come? And I say, yes, and this is what I would like to do. So I'm in a position where I can program, and because I have the trust of orchestras and companies and managements and so on, I can say, and I'd like to invite this and this and this person who you've never heard of. And they'll say, okay. So that's what I, I decided to do was to start Equilibrium. And I wanted to find who was out there, who was interesting, who was curious, who was kind of, um, yeah, people that had something different about them. Not just like a special skill, but like that had, had a high um, capacity for discipline and hard work that were curious, had to have good voices, high level of musicianship, good technique, you know, the possibility really to have a serious career, but we're still maybe could use a helping hand. And so I started EQ and I had, I mean, by now, well, I, I started with a production of the Rake's Progress, which I was triple casting mm. and I was going to do it with four, four different orchestras maybe which I did, and we also made a film of it, and a documentary was made. So that was like the first project. And then, and I didn't have any funding, by the way. So oh. then, I, yeah, so that was kind of crazy. So then, and I was like, well, I, of course, I'll sink some of my own savings into it, but um, I didn't know exactly how I was going to do it. But then I applied to um, one foundation, the Lucerne Art Mentor Foundation, and they gave us some money just when I really needed it, which was amazing. And then I won a prize in Sweden, the Rolf Schock Prize. And it's a prize from, um, um, he was a mathematician, um, kind of physicist expert, and he had had a prize that went out to four people. One was in the arts and the other three were in math and sciences. And I got that prize and it gave me enough money to get the thing going in the first year. Mm. And, uh, so that was amazing. So I, I had auditions. I heard hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of applications, um, I think from like 42 countries. Um, I watched everything online. I read their letters. I looked at their CVs. I watched their videos. And then I invited musicians to come, the singers, uh, in person to different cities and to do auditions. And that's how I met Doug Williams, for example. I'd heard about him. Um, so I already was pretty interested in him. Um, so am I. Oh, he's he's such a phenomenal <laughs> artist. I, mean, the I guy, love him. I know, he, he knows that I love him, but like yeah, I he, really love him. So yeah, yeah, super super talent. And and I mean, with the voice that he has, which is such a rich uh, bass baritone instrument, um, and combined with his curiosity, his high level of musicianship, and his ability an interest in the contemporary repertoire as well as the traditional repertoire That's and poetry just, and dancing and poetry <laughs> and dancing it's just yeah and and just he's a real humanist you know so um, so that's, I mean, it's kind of like people like Doug that I ended up choosing for Equilibrium. And we're now, what is it now? 2021. So, and we actually had a season this year. It was crazy. Like in the pandemic. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like we did, we, Pulcinella became our pandemic piece. And we did it in, <laughs> I had a team in Switzerland. I have a team, including Doug, coming up in, at the Paris Philharmonie. I was with Munich Philharmonic with, also with Doug. Um, I, created opportunities for i did an equilibrium engagement like the one the, the the show that's going to be broadcast um tomorrow night april 30th also a, a young artist who auditioned for equilibrium so i've been keeping the dream alive 
And it's really, <laughs> it's, it's an initiative where I, I bring the, the younger artists into the highest level of performance with the orchestras and ensembles with whom I work. But I'm also, um, we also have guests come in and talk to us. And I love this. Like, I love Q&As. I always learn so much. Um, kind of like podcasts, you know, I just love podcasts. And so we have people like Daniel Harding, Natalie Desay, Laurent Nauri, um, Didier Martin, the head of, of Alpha. Um, we've had social media experts coming in. We've had, you know, mental health experts coming in. Mm. We've had all kinds of people that, that come in and speak to uh, the young artists about their paths composers casper holton the former any athletes of, of, come in well jackie jackie reardon um was like she's kind of part of eq and jackie's a former professional tennis player who started this whole mindset um friendly eyes kind of initiative which is all about yeah mental focus and discipline basically and so there have been athletes who are connected to eq people because of our connection to Olympic athletes through Jackie. Um, if you ask me the same question in about a month, I'll have a different answer for you. You have Roger uh, Federer coming in? Oh, uh, that would be cool. <laughs> but no, oh, no, I don't I have a plan for Roger Federer. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, I'm a huge fan. <laughs> I'm a huge fan. That guy is classy, really classy. <laughs> right now, I've got my eyes on Stefano Tsitsipas. Oh, okay. First, because because I love his name, but also, I mean, <laughs> it sounds. I like mean, a, come on, sounds like the fly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so it, obviously, you're providing a lot of resources, even as you said during the pandemic. Um, and uh, I feel like at this point, it almost feels like a cliche cliche to talk about what the world of the arts is, is going to look like after the pandemic. But I mm -hmm. thought you might have a, because you're already such an uh, original sort of figure in the operatic pantheon, if you will. Um, and I, I was just wondering, how do you think artists can and should move forward uh, to create a new post-pandemic normal? Um, <laughs> especially when it comes to like, you know, uh, like like momentum or, uh, mm. uh, or, or just your general thoughts uh, in, in abstract. Okay, well, maybe I'll leave momentum for maybe my second, second part of my answer, and I'll start Great. with a few things. <laughs> I think that um, we have to accept that streaming is here to stay. Mm -hmm. um, and if you like it or you don't like it, you've got to accept it. That there, you know, some concert halls had streaming, like Berlin Phil and Gothenburg Symphony. It was normal for the concerts to be streamed. Other places like the radio orchestras, you know, they're always going out on the radio and occasionally had video coverage. But I think we have to accept now that it's here. And right. it's difficult for any artists. I mean, I've talked to many artists that are, you know, not young artists anymore about how tough they find the, the streamings because the audience isn't there and that they really get their energy from the audience. I also... Mm. What I find the most difficult is singing when there is an audience and it's also being streamed. So say you've mm. got, you've got a, you know, a half a size audience or sometimes some places I played 1800 seat hall in November for 50 people. And we did the show six times and it was for radio. And that was super tough 
because I wanted to sing for the radio mic, but there's 50 people spread out over this huge hall. And if they don't right, hear me, right. I also feel, so, and you sing very differently. You perform very differently. It's like film acting versus theater acting. So, um, and it's the same with streaming. Like I actually started to really enjoy the streamings as long as there was no audience there. If I could do a streaming, like a recording session with beautiful light. And I just thought this is a really beautiful recording session and we're all dressed up and we look fabulous and I'm singing for the mic, you know, um, then it was okay. But I think this is something that artists are really going to have to navigate because it's not only the fact that it's being streamed, it's the fact that it's staying out there. You know? Yes. It's absolutely. not just your, your one night concert where you didn't feel at your best you can't forget about it because everybody keeps watching it for the next, you know, 30 days, six months, five years. And it's very hard to negotiate rights to say it can't stay up or I get approval. I mean, approval, <laughs> artist approval. I mean, even me at the age I'm at, artist approval is, is really hard to, to sort out. And I can't imagine what it's like for young artists that don't have, you know, the, the, the power that the older artists have. Um, I just think of like the the Mets, you know, every night since the beginning of the pandemic, just putting out a, another stream in their library. Um, and I, I, I can't imagine like what the legal loopholes must be that they're exploiting to do that. But uh, it, it is very much a concern. And especially when you, uh, for someone like you, who is creating something so personal, I wonder, have you ever run into anything like that where you've not wanted uh, them to put something out? <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, no, I've been pretty supportive of, of everything going out. Um, I just also maybe because I'm from Waverly, Nova Scotia, and mm -hmm. most much of my family and friends, they still live in Nova Scotia. They, they're not going to get to Paris Opera. They're not going to get to Munich. So I like exactly. that my family can, you know, if the internet's working that day, that they can watch stuff I'm doing. So as an um, Alabama native, I really feel that. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, it's, I think it's really amazing. Um, and I'm such a fan of radio and I've been, I mean, pretty well, well, I would say a lot of what I did since I was 19 years old was on radio because I was doing world premieres. So I'm mm -hmm. used to, to being like out there. And, um, I feel that the idea of traveling is going to change. And this hopping overseas back and forth and, and, you know, I think that's probably going to change in the next while. I have friends in the airline industry. I also have friends in the climate change movement. And mm -hmm. I know that both are suffering for very, for very different reasons. Um, but um, I think that we're going to see touring change considerably and I personally am much less eager I mean I never liked being on airplanes very much anyway um, because I it, I mean sometimes I could maybe watch a movie that was nice or catch up on on uh, some reading but otherwise I just find I find it very very stressful going through customs and going going overseas back and forth and the jet lag and so on so but I think it's really going to change uh, I think financially there's going to be less money and people are going to be more interested in having artists come for two or three weeks than coming for one week at a time. And I'm noticing that already in my calendar in future seasons, that people want you to come for a residency. And I do too, you know, as long as I can find someone to look after my cats. Like, I, I really, I'm happy to Volunteering go Volunteering as tribute. <laughs> 
Oh, really? Cat, well, we'll take care of your cats for you. <laughs> <Yes. laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so I think that's, that's pretty important. And then <clears throat> the, if I go back to momentum, I'll just say a few words about it. So I started, like, I was having all these conversations with my colleagues from Equilibrium, my younger colleagues, um, during the first few months of the pandemic. And then when like little, there was like a window in the, in the spring and summer where these online concerts were happening and sometimes even concerts for audiences. And the younger artists were saying, yeah, but they're, nobody's asking us. They're asking like the stars, but they're not asking us to headline an event when the places want to bring their audiences back. And, I was, mm. and they said, you know, our momentum just got going and now it's been stopped. And I was like, okay. So I looked at all the series and I looked at everyone that was being asked to come and perform, conductors and soloists. I started with singers and conductors. And I just got on the phone and I called them and I said, okay, so there's very little work. I need you to share the stage with a younger artist of your choice. You will share your fee with them. The presenter will give them some money and Momentum will give some money to the event. So it'll be a three-way contribution to a fee for a young artist. Say you've got a 75-minute recital, you give them 10 to 15 minutes on the main stage on in your event. It's exciting for the audience because they're, they're like, oh, who does Natalie DeSay want to share the stage with? This is interesting. You know, who did she choose? Or, uh, you know, who, who did, like, Patricia Kapachinsky, you know, the violinist, who did she choose? Or whatever. So it's very, it's interesting for the audience. Uh, I think mentoring is something that um, is identifiable, like is understandable by people in many, many different fields. So it shows a really fine example for business, for law, for medicine, for technology, et cetera. We're, we're kind of leading the way. Um, and it shows generosity. Um, and so the momentum model, I basically what happened was I called, I guess I must have spent like about a hundred hours on the telephone over the period of maybe two or three weeks and calling everyone I knew and many people that I didn't know asking them to pledge to do an event one just I said even if you only do it once on your entire year then you're part of it okay okay and I would explain they'd be like <laughs> okay and I said okay I'm going to put up your picture and I want a quote from you so I did I had hired someone to create the fabulous website and one of the people I was talking to, I was going to launch everything in September. And then I was talking to Sir Antonio Papano, who is the chief conductor of the Royal Opera House in London. And I was talking to him and he was listening and he, he said he wanted to be part of it. And he said, I think I have an idea. Let me come back to you. And like literally a day later, it was like August 27th or something. He said, I'm going to do it on Friday this week. I was like, no, we're not ready. We're not launching until <laughs> mid-September. And this was going to be like August 30th. And I didn't say no. I was like, I just said, great. Okay. <laughs> and then it was like no sleep for three days to just get everything with the website and everything. We just raced to the finish and we got everything up. And Tony launched it. Uh, Tony Papano launched it with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. And he played the piano for a young baritone and... And so it's amazing. And I think it's really here to stay. Like the mm. momentum model where older artists, leading artists are inviting younger artists to share the main stage with them, basically giving them a seat at the table. 
I mean, why would you not do that? Mm -hmm. Like, yeah. why, why now that we've done it? And this is the feedback that I'm getting. Everybody that's done it, like, why would you not do that? Like, audiences <laughs> love it. Concert series love it. We meet lots of new young artists. We get to see, like, you know, who the leading artists are interested in and why it evokes curiosity. Um, it's just, yeah. So I, I'm, I, I was actually talking to um, uh, Leeds Leader, which is a concert series in England today. And uh, he was telling me that they'd implemented the Momentum model. And now one of the young Momentum artists that they hired now is getting a main stage recital of his own nice. on the series. And I was like, yes. And we had another Momentum artist, Fleur Baron, who's also part of Equilibrium. And Fleur was... Um, she was uh, hired as a momentum artist. And then when she had a big solo recital later in the year, she brought on a younger artist onto her mm. recital. So she flipped it like within six months, she was like the <laughs> leading artist. And, and I was just like, yeah, that's how it's done. So yeah, like, you know, and when you're passionate about stuff and enthusiastic about stuff, you have time to make it happen. You, I think you can sleep less. I think we're going to start uh, dedicating <laughs> 10 minutes of our podcast to introduce people to other podcasts. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? <laughs> There's a really crazy piece called Piero Lunaire by yes. Schoenberg. And it's that's, uh, that's Weston's nighttime music. That's he puts, he plays. <laughs> puts it on uh, to go to sleep. So. It's, Wait, it's, you, I love that piece. It's so good. Well, it's, I've never done the piece because I, I kind of wanted to wait till my voice was a bit ruined before I started. <laughs> wait, you can see my cat. This is Monty. Hi, Monty. Monty. Hi. I'll see oh, you soon, The real Monty. star of the show. Yeah. He is a star. <laughs> he wants to go inside. Yes, you came. He didn't even come home last night. He was like, hmm. anyways. Um, hmm. So there's a new recording of Piero Lunaire out. Um, and it's on the alpha label, actually. Mm -hmm but I'm not pushing it because of that. It's the thing is it's not by a singer and it's not by an actor. It's by a violinist mm -hmm. named Patricia Kopachinskaya. Okay. And it's, it's woman, such a good recording. I have not heard the whole thing yet, but oh, she you should. Is, it's, no, it's amazing. I'm sure it's amazing. And the thing about Pat, like we're going to do a concert together this summer um, in Aix-en-Provence with some Messiaen music. Um, she's just a phenomenal musician. And, when I heard that she was going to do Pierre Lunaire, I was just like, it's going to be amazing because she's got this courage. Um, she's theatrical. She has a really amazing voice. She really knows how to use her <laughs> instrument. And she doesn't worry like singers would. Oh, I don't want to hurt or I want to make sure the placement is right or whatever. She doesn't think about that. She's like all over the place and it's really free. And it's, I think it's extremely inspiring. So I would say that would be one recording I would recommend and the other recording I want to recommend which I'm a bit addicted to is if you like like French art song like Foray you know Debussy there's this bass baritone named Laurent Naouri N-A-O-U-R-I yeah. he's the husband of Wasn't Natalie he married to Natalie Desai yeah he is, okay. is he is married okay. to her and anyway he made a recording of like French art song, but with a jazz guitar player, and he turned them mm. into jazz songs. And it's so, I mean, he, he has such, a, I sang Peleas and Melisande with him, and he has this gorgeous, like, 
really mellow instrument, bass baritone instrument. And this recording is just, it's just gorgeous. I don't know what to call it, but I guess what I've chosen are two recordings that don't fit into any real category. And yet I'm totally in, in love with both recordings. So that, nice. that would be my recommendation. And as far as sport goes, I mean, running is my sport. Um, that's what I love to do. And I don't listen to classical music when I run. I listen to Lady Gaga. I listen to... Like, <laughs> that's I have running playlist. music. It is. Well, the Joanne album has some really good running tunes for me. Mm -hmm. um, the Right Pace. And like Pharrell Williams, um, Daft Punk. And I mean, that's the kind of stuff that I listen to on my, on my little running playlist. And... I find that the cardio, like I need to do a cardio that's difficult enough that I can't think. I can't think mm. about other things. Like I really need to have something that exhausts me so that I'm only really thinking about breath and keeping going. And for me, that's fantastic because running equilibrium and running momentum and having all these crazy projects, it's sometimes it's just... You know, I, I started off this podcast by saying I, you know, I go from my gut, but I do actually have to think a lot and organize a lot. And, you know, my system really just needs to run and run and run sometimes and just get all that out. A little more sports before we dive into everything you need to know from Operaland this week. Ashley, what was going on at the Old Trafford in Manchester? <laughs> Uh, in the words of a great Twisted Sister song, uh, we're not going to take it anymore. <laughs> they went ham and stormed the field to protest the owners who were the Glazer family. They're frustrated with those guys because they are saddling the football club with a lot of debt. Um, the Super League debacle was apparently the last straw for a lot of folks, but they stormed the field so much so that they've canceled. I think it, it was yesterday's match that they had to cancel, but the fans at Manchester are upset um and it's very interesting i learned this today they're talking about you know the fans are upset because manchester has a lot of debt as a as a football club the glazer family owns another football club that's right ac yeah across the pond tampa bay are, right who are the reigning super bowl champion tampa bay buccaneers yeah so uh it'll be very interesting to see how much money Tampa Bay makes and if any of the assets get moved around. Um, my biggest question, though, was I wonder if this would work in the opera world. Like if we could get a bunch of fans to like rapidly protest Gelb at like a Triada. <laughs> like, I mean, first you'd have to get a bunch of mad fans to be mad at Peter Gelb. Very but. fair. Very fair. Can we fly in folks from like other? Yeah, because I bet we could get some rowdy Texas fans and some Minnesota fans. I bet we Maybe we could make this work. I we could put together. Somewhere. We could get I think some it could work. No, I really honestly do. I mean, I think you could really have a crazy eye-catching impact, but boy, it would take some organization. It's not just like six pints down the pub and then let off some fireworks outside the old Trafford. It takes a little more, little more um, connection to make that happen. Two-minute drill. It's right now. This just in. The two-minute drill. All right, listen up. Here's everything you need to know about what happened in Opera Land this week. The BBC Cardiff Singer of the World competition will return this summer to pit singers from 15 countries against each other for the main prize and the song prize. We'll be rooting for American baritone Reginald Smith Jr., though so far no contestant has the official OBS bump. The competition begins June 13th without an audience. 
As American theaters and opera companies gear up for potential reopenings in the fall, at least one major opera house may not open in 2021. The International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees, the union that represents stagehands, technicians, has announced the lockout of its workers at the Metropolitan Opera is unlikely to end before 2022. Carphone tycoon David Ross will step down as chair of the Royal Opera House just months into his four-year tenure. Sky News reports that the billionaire's departure has been triggered by his prospective appointment as a second-term chair for the National Portrait Gallery. This week's yellow cards. Austria. The Vienna State Opera has set its reopening date to May 14th in order to complete its last six weeks of its current season. This week's red cards. Germany. Opera companies continue to batten down the hatches in the wake of COVID-19 cases in the country. Oper Frankfurt, Staatsoper Stuttgart, Staatsoper Dresden, Bayerische Staatsoper, and Nationaltheater Mannheim have all extended their shutdowns. Plus, Oper Köln and Mecklenburgisches Staatstheater have announced they will be ending their seasons altogether. Italy. Maggio Musicale Fiorentino has cancelled its upcoming performance of Don Giovanni due to the pandemic. Poland. The Polish National Opera has extended its closure to May 7th, canceling that day's performance of Werther. Russia! The Bolshoi has canceled all touring productions abroad until March 2022, citing international distrust of Russian-made vaccines. On the disabled list, Anita Ratsvelashvili has canceled her upcoming recital at the Teatro Real de Madrid due to family reasons. Family reasons. The mezzo-soprano reassured her social media followers that she was fine and that the concert would be rescheduled soon. Exit stage right, Paul Kellogg. The former general and artistic director of both Glimmerglass and New York City operas has died at 84. During his Glimmerglass tenure, he doubled the productions per season, built a new theater, and earned the company a national reputation. English composer and musicologist Anthony Payne has passed away one month after the passing of his wife, soprano Jane Manning. He is best known for his completion of Edward Elgar's Third Symphony for the BBC Proms, as well as his books on Arnold Schoenberg and Frank Bridge. Greek-American Verdi baritone Theodori Lambrinos has died at age 85. Lambrinos sang 60-plus roles with the Metropolitan Opera. He was an avid promoter of classical Greek music and released an album of Hellenic songs. Romanian tenor Corneliu Murgu has passed away at age 72. After an international career in Verdi tenor roles, he became the general manager of Romania's National Opera. American soprano and voice teacher Eileen Schaller Sharon has passed away at age 92. She made her New York City opera debut in the title role of Shostakovich's Lady Macbeth of the Mitzensk District and sang 24 lead roles with the company. Sharon made her Broadway debut in the title role of My Darlin' Aida. And on this day, May 3rd in 1844, it was the birth of English impresario, founder of the Savoy Theatre, and George's secret father, Richard Doilycart. A very happy birthday to Russian composer Nikolai Cherepinin. Cherepin? Cherepinin? Nailed it. Who was born on this day in 1873 in St. Petersburg. In 1918, it was the birth of Canadian tenor Leopold Simoneau in Saint-Flavien, Canada. Dutch mezzo-soprano Mimi Arden was born on this day in 1924. And in 1971, a very happy birthday to the NPR radio network, which is the United States national non-commercial radio network and number one competition for this podcast. And that's your two-minute drill.
that was Canadian tenor and favorite of at least one member of this panel, <laughs> Leopold Simonon, singing uh, the Ario Je crois entendre encore from Bizet's Le Pêcheur de Perle, which is the hardest tenor aria that has practically no payoff ever, because if the audience can tell how hard it is, you're not singing it right. <laughs> <laughs> Very true. <laughs> oh my goodness. When will the madness stop at the Met? It's just like chaos to chaos to chaos over I there. Mean, not till 2022, apparently, according to the people that are literally going to have to be in the house to make the shows work. I just, okay, uh, here's the thing. I, I'm speechless. That's where I am. I'm fully speech. No, I just, I feel like no one's thinking this through. Like, how in the world do you expect to have productions when you are locking out all of the literal sets of skilled hands that you need to make the actual operatic magic happen? Those sets ain't gonna move themselves, Peter. You gonna get back there and do it? Come on. <laughs> it, Those yeah, lights it, don't get turned on by themselves. It's like, it's a never-ending battle between, like, short-term and long-term interest, short-term and long-term interest with union negotiations. And it, it's... It, it's really hard to get that balance right on both sides, but right now, like, Scorched Earth is here to stay. Yeah. And this one is going to be messy until they have an agreement. Right, this look, like IOTC a... knows that there are problems coming down the pike here, right? Like, this is a very unsettled, uncertain world. It's not going to get any easier. It feels like they're trying to get ahead of the Met here and try and, you know, make the first move. Oliver. No, it's an old reference, but it just reminds me of Daenerys Targaryen uh, going ahead and burning down uh, what was the name of the city? Uh, King's, King's, King's Landing. Landing. Yeah, It's like, let's just burn it. Whatever. <laughs> the, the final season of the yeah. Met is not looking very good. It's not very well written. Are they I doing do, Get to Demeron? <laughs> <laughs> I do respect Yahtzee for like really being like, you know, if, you, if, if you're not going to, if you're not going to work things out, it's not going to happen. Um, and because they know that looks bad, you know, especially for the Met. Um, and there's only so many ways the Met can spin it for that long and to, uh, and still remain the good guy. At least that's what they're betting, I imagine. Well, I mean, well, yeah. we talk, we've talked about this story on the show before in, in that the last kind of movement here was that the Met was agreeing to bridge payments in order to get the unions to the table for these negotiations and now the unions are saying that they really are not interested in fair negotiations Mm -hmm. and that nothing has really moved since then it's it's a bad sign well and for i mean at the end of the day like if the met wants to come back in the way that the met wants to come back and in the way that their Mm -hmm. like truest diehard patrons want to come back that is america's version of grand opera and grand opera needs all of the grandioseness it needs the big sets it needs the big costumes and for that you need the skilled laborer of these technicians that are Mm -hmm. all represented by this union so they know exactly what they're doing and they know they hold the power here from the stage of the Met to the boardroom at Covent Garden in the Royal Opera House. So David <laughs> Ross, the founder of the Carphone Warehouse. Carphone what a thing is to, a... to make your fortune on. I love it. I mean, that's like being the fax kingpin, you know? Like... <laughs> he, he invented toaster strudel. <laughs> <laughs> and Pop-Tarts. So he, this is when he took the, the job nine months ago. David Ross said he was, quote, Passionate about creating opportunities for all and ensuring that everyone can enjoy our great cultural institutions, artists, and musicians. So that was A, during the pandemic, and B, like, 
not exactly a lie, but sort of, you know, management speak, essentially. Of course, mm-hmm. David Ross, the member of the ROH board who bought that David Hockney painting from... Suck up. The, uh, <laughs> oh, my God. In order to kind of keep the whole thing afloat. My problem, of course, is that he's he's part of a conservative party, and he's a big conservative party donor. Does the Royal Opera House really need a big uh, Tory running that ship? It does Let's not. make this political. I don't think it does. I don't think it does. Where's well, the Sharpie? Get the Sharpie. Uh, apparently, David Ross, apparently, David Ross agrees with you because he's not there anymore. <laughs> <laughs> and, and he shouldn't be confused with Bob Ross, by the way. I've also oh, yeah, been confused different. with Bob Ross along with that little <laughs> from Annie. Um, and uh, they're two different people. Thank you, George. Thank you for that update from the front lines. <laughs> <laughs> All right, let's wrap this show up. Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Good call, bad call, the way we always wrap up every show of Except Western. BS. <laughs> Starting off with Oliver Camacho. Uh, this week, Teatro Underveen released uh, a teaser video of their production of Plate. The entire um, opera performance will come out later this summer, but Janine de Beek stars as La Folie uh, and dances the vogue and if you have not seen this video yet get you to the internet and look it's it up so it's so good it's incredible <gasps> matt cummings uh i got a bad call this week which is about a new york times story that came out in between when we recorded the last week's show and when it came out um we haven't really talked very much about the downfall of scott rudin and all of the stories that have come out about his le- apparently legendarily abusive behavior and all of the harrowing allegations that former staffers and co-workers are, are bringing forward now. And it seems like it's a long overdue reckoning there. Uh, but one of the upshots that came from it that is really unfortunate for all of us theater lovers is that the long-awaited Buñuel musical from Stephen Sondheim is almost certainly not going to be happening. It, it's been in development hell for quite some time. Sondheim is 91 years old and doesn't look like that's uh, gonna come together. So we're sorry I know for I'm your loss, Matt. I'm just gonna have to pretend that bounce didn't happen, so that the last Sondheim musical is good. <laughs> <laughs> well, but keep in mind there are rumblings that there's gonna be a re-recording of a full cast recording of Anyone Can Whistle. So we've got something to look forward to. Well, and of course Thomas Addis, when he did uh, Exterminating Angel, he kind of filled that Buñuel niche, I think, in a way. Weston Williams, anything? Good or bad on your mind? Um, I didn't think so. Ashley Hardgrave. <laughs> um, I am a big fan of gospel music. This shouldn't surprise anyone. Um, it is uh, Asian Pacific Islander Heritage Month, uh, and I want to bring to your attention this really awesome group that I love. I've known them for a while, but I've really been getting into them this last week or so. Um, they're called Korean Soul, and it is exactly what you think it is. It is a soul gospel four guy Korean group and they are incredible. Amazing. They have a ton of stuff on YouTube. They've been taken under the wings of BB and CC Winans. If you know anything about gospel music, that is a big deal. Um, and it just got announced that they're going to be on this season of America's Got Talent. And so in a move that shocks even me, I'm going to be watching America's Got Talent so that I can watch <laughs> Korean Soul. So look them up, get into it. 
I got a good call as well this week. Uncle George, always a little bit late to the party, but I did finally watch Bohemian Rhapsody, the biopic, and it does a great <laughs> job of showing you the influence of opera on Freddie Mercury. You've got some great Puccini uh, referenced in that film. So is, there any, is there any shout out? Takes. Is there any wow. shout out to OBS Hall of Famer Monserrat Caballé? <laughs> <laughs> That's it for this week's edition of America's Talk radio show about opera. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. He's at normwaddell.com. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Twitter, Instagram, we're at Opera Box Score. And just helping us deepen that bench of listeners by liking and sharing our social media posts. Email us your hot takes, operaboxscore at gmail.com. Subscribe to the podcast that's on Stitcher or just favorite the show on Apple Podcasts. The views and opinions expressed on Opera Box Score are solely those of the show's creative team. Any rebroadcast, reproduction, or other use of the accounts of this show without the express written consent of Opera Box Score is fine if traded for a first-round draft pick. Go Bears. Our creative consultant is Oliver Camacho, our audio and video editor, Weston Williams. For your co-hosts, Matt Cummings and Ashley Hardgrave, as well as our special guest, Barbara Hannigan. I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with your pit crew as they change your tires. We're back with an all-new show next week when we spotlight Asian artists you should know. Plus, more opera headlines, more hot takes, more momentum. Join us. <laughs>